Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 235 A Visitation from the Unknown. We're joined this week by spiritual teacher Andrew Cohen to hear the story of how he came to teach what he calls evolutionary enlightenment. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today with a special guest, calling over Skype. I'm here today with Andrew Cohen. Andrew, thanks again for taking the time. I know you're right in the middle of a book tour, so I appreciate you being able to jump on and chat with the Buddhist geeks today. It's my pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Cool. And so, obviously, part of what we're going to talk about is some of the material from your new book, Evolutionary Enlightenment. But hopefully that'll just be sort of a jumping off point for a deeper discussion around some of the things that you've been teaching for decades now. A little bit of background for the people on Buddhist Geeks who may not be familiar with your work. If they haven't heard of your name particularly, they've probably heard of some of the publications that you've helped put out in the past. Um, You founded and helped start a magazine called What is Enlightenment that turned into Enlighten Next. And this is a magazine that personally has been incredibly influential. Actually, I don't know if you know this, Andrew, but when Buddhist Geeks first launched, you gave us a little plug in there, and that was right in the first few months. And that was some of the most incredible uh, feedback that we got that actually something we were doing was being heard and that it was interesting. So you, you probably had a pretty big part in helping Buddhist Geeks continue. <laughs> oh, well, that's great to hear. No, I mean, I, I do remember that, but I, I had no idea of the impact it had or anything like that. Yeah, it's good no, to hear. It was good. It was some good early encouragement. So thank you. I mean, the other thing that you're doing, not just with a magazine and with your nonprofit Enlighten X, you're also teaching. Uh, you do intensive retreats all around the world, public lectures. I mean, you're doing a lot of different sort of outreach stuff and teaching with respect to your teachings on evolutionary enlightenment. But before we jump into that, I figured it'd be helpful to kind of get a sense of where you're coming from, what your sort of background is. I understand, and I can't remember where I read this, that you first got into spiritual practice, or at least in your early days, you were doing Buddhist meditation and doing Vipassana. So maybe if you could start with that, since it'll at least give our listeners some common reference point. Sure. I mean, my history is I was, um, I'm 55 years old. I was, I was brought up in a, a secular upper middle class Jewish household in, uh, in New York City. And because of that, I really had no exposure to, to religious or spiritual ideas my first exposure to to mysticism or to and to the experience of deeper dimensions of reality was when I was 16 years old and I was living in Rome, Italy at the time with my mother and we were sitting up late one night uh, having a discussion about that which I do not remember. But for some reason, the doors of perception uh, miraculously and mysteriously opened and I found myself engulfed in a very profound uh, mystical experience I had an experience that's traditionally called cosmic consciousness. It's hard to really explain rationally, but the experience was that I, I suddenly became aware of the, of the whole universe. 
uh, which is something that's once again hard to put into words how such a thing could be possible, but it, it's simply what occurred. It became apparent to me that that the entire universe, the entire cosmic process was uh, self-aware. There was intelligence and self-awareness and the ultimate nature of the whole process, which I was an inseparable part of, was a kind of impersonal absolute love that was physically overwhelming and almost physically excruciating to experience. And I was in a state of awe and wonder and tears were streaming down my cheeks, but I wasn't even really crying and my throat was opening and closing uncontrollably. I became aware in that moment that there was no such thing as death and that all points in space were exactly the same place. In other words, for some reason, uh, it became also apparent that no matter where one went in space, one would always be in exactly the same place. I had recalled that around that time I had been seeing a, a documentary and one of the scenes in the documentary showed hundreds of Buddhist monks prostrating before a gigantic Buddhist statue somewhere in Southeast, in the jungles of Southeast Asia. And I remember, because of my secular background, I didn't understand why the monks were prostrating before the statue of the giant Buddha. I, I didn't understand what would motivate an individual to, to prostrate oneself. And I remember in that, in the few moments of this uh, powerful, mystical awakening, I knew without any doubt why they were bowing down. This was my, my spiritual initiation. It, was, it seemed unsought for. I call it a visitation from the unknown. And um, that was really the beginning. And then I, I, I really didn't know what to make of the experience, even though I knew that it was the most real few moments of my entire life. That, that was the only thing I was sure of. At the time, I had wanted to be a musician, a, a jazz drummer. But when I was 22, in early 20s, the memory of this experience was haunting me. In my life, I was struggling quite a bit. I was in an early, early life. It wasn't a midlife crisis, but it was an early life crisis. Uh, at a certain point, because this, the memory of this, this spiritual episode kept returning to me and haunting me, I finally gave up everything I was doing and, and consciously and very deliberately committed my young life at that time to the rediscovery of that which had revealed itself so unexpectedly to me. And so I, when I was 22, I became a, a spiritual seeker and I did all the things that seekers do. I, um, you know, I, I learned how to meditate. I took initiation initially from, uh, in a path of Kundalini yoga from, uh, from an Indian spiritual master. I was getting up every morning reading spiritual books. I went to see every kind of spiritual teacher and spiritual master that came through town from rabbis who were teaching Kabbalah to Zen masters. I even went to see Christian evangelists and, uh, some healers. I, I was just very curious, uh, but I was also, yeah, I was just very curious. I wanted to learn everything. And, uh, I became a very serious meditator. And one day, um, you brought up the Vipassana question. One day, a, f a friend of mine who was also practicing the same form of Kundalini yoga as I was, had told me that I could go on to a Buddhist retreat center and do meditation retreats where one could meditate for 18 hours a day. And so I found this as a very, very compelling idea. And that was really my introduction to to Buddhism and to Buddhist thought and to Buddhist practice. And my first retreat, my first Buddhist meditation retreat was with uh, Joseph Goldstein, the, the famous Vipassana meditation teacher and his teacher, Anagarika Manindra. It was two 10-day retreats back-to-back -back in Barry, Massachusetts. I had a very powerful introduction to the nature of mind. 
I'd had a lot of experience with uh, Western uh, psychoanalysis at that point in my early life, but learning how to be an objective witness to the arising of the content of the mind was very powerful for me. And just learning how to how to bear witness and have no relationship to the content of consciousness, I learned and I had a very powerful experience, especially in the first those first few retreats I had, as most people do. Once I began to do these Buddhist retreats, I began to do lots of them. I made much time in my life really to devote myself to spiritual practice. And I did many, many of them, even though I've, I never was a Buddhist and I never considered myself to be a Buddhist, even at the time, because because of the original experience I'd had, I always felt that the ultimate nature of reality was something rather than nothing. And so that was why I could never really surrender myself to Buddhism as a, as a personal spiritual path, even though I found the, the, the Buddhist uh, meditative path uh, very powerful and, and very helpful to me as a seeker. And I, I learned a lot. And then when I was um, 27, I, like many people from my generation, and it almost, it's almost a kind of a cultural cliche, but I went to India originally just for three months. And when I arrived there, I decided I wasn't going to leave because the spiritual passion that was burning inside my heart, I felt I could express fully and freely there. Whereas when I was you know, back in the States, when I felt when I told people really what I was cared about and what I was interested in, most people found it a little hard to understand and found it a bit curious or a bit odd. And so I stayed in India for about two and a half years. And I decided I was going to go actually to Korea and be a, be a Zen monk and practice martial arts until I became enlightened. No matter what, I was going to, I, I knew, I always knew, you know, ever since I made up my mind when I was 22, that, that I would be able to do this, that I would succeed. But I, at that point, I really, I just felt that I needed to live a life of absolute self-discipline and renunciation. And it just seemed that Korea would be the easiest place for me to do it. And right before I left, I, I went to visit at the time little-known teacher of Advaita Vedanta and a disciple of the great 20th century spiritual master Ramana Maharshi, and his name was H.W.L. Punja. And I spent three weeks with him in Lucknow. He had a small room at the time in his son's house. He was a powerfully illumined, enlightened man and and a great spiritual master. And as a result of spending three weeks with him, my my life was transformed. In, in the most dramatic way, really as a result of a few conversations we had, uh, he re- reignited the spiritual process that had really begun when I'd had that first spiritual initiation when I was 16 years old. And um, it catalyzed a powerful, energetic, almost process of purification. As a result of those three weeks with him, I was, I was spiritually and, kind of, and physically overwhelmed and in the first three weeks, I, I felt like my, my body was being consumed by an energetic a fire that was raging from my solar plexus all through my body. And, and I was going in and out of the most profound and intense states of, of consciousness. And during that time, I, I, I was with him for three weeks, and then I left him for three weeks. I started teaching quite spontaneously. I would just start speaking to my friends at the time about what had happened to me, and, and miraculously, they began to be drawn into the same state I was. And I, I was quite amazed and confused by all this. And when I went, went back to see him, he told me that uh, he knew this was going to happen. And he asked me then to teach, to teach and, and initially to teach in his, you know, his name. He said, I want you to accept responsibility for the work that he was doing. And he at the time thought he was going to pass. 
And so he kind of transmitted his mantle to me. It turns out that he didn't pass, and he, he lived on for, I think, another, probably, I think, around nine years after that. But that was really, that was the beginnings, and that was like, that was 25 years ago, and that was really when I be- how I became a teacher. Mm, so interesting. And did you find, it's hard to put this into clear words, but did you find there was something fundamentally different in the work that you had been doing with the Buddhist practices and then the conversation that ignited this transformation with Punja? To be explicit, he was a powerfully enlightened human being whose spiritual transmission, in other words, his, his consciousness was powerfully illumined and by being in his physical presence, especially if one had, if there was sympathetic interest in him as a spiritual master, one could not help but be catapulted into uh, higher states of consciousness simply by being in his physical presence. In his teaching, he basically taught by giving up what's called pointing out instructions in, in Buddhism and he was always pointing he was always pointing one's awareness back to consciousness you know away from the mind and back to consciousness he always pointed one's attention to beyond time and beyond the mind and because of the place that he was pointing from he was pointing from the place that he was pointing everyone to in a sense being in the presence of someone like that you know enlightened awareness was not an abstract concept or abstract idea but it was a tangible living presence so that was very different because with i think my first teacher my first teacher who initiated me into into the kundalini yoga meditation experience had similar qualities but he was really teaching a method with punjaji there was no method it was more or less the perennial teachings of adana that consciousness is all there is and that's what he was pointing one directly back to he was very bold in his teachings in the sense that he felt that any path or practice that involves time is actually taking you away from where you already are at the level of consciousness. So he even felt that that meditation, that the meditation, which was a practice that would lead one somewhere, he said, because the presumption is that you're not already there. And of course, from the perspective of enlightened awareness, we are always already there. How could we not be? So from the perspective of enlightened awareness, that is always true, you know, once one realizes it. So he, he would remove all props and all methods and all approaches until, you, until it became patently obvious to you that you had, in fact, from the deepest love of your being, never been unenlightened, that you had never been already free. And I remember in my first experience with him, this was in my first meeting with him, I was with a friend of mine, and we were, well, we were with him, and we were uh, speaking about how much effort one had to make if one wanted to be free. And he just said in a very calm voice, very, very quietly, almost whispering, he said, you don't have to make any effort to be free. And when he said those few words, you don't have to make any effort to be free, I was transported into another dimension. And I, I saw in the eye of my mind a brook or a brook or a stream, and the, it was the water was running down the side of the hill. And I realized that 
that my own true nature was that water, the water running down the hill, there was no obstruction in the water, it was always free. And I realized that that, that that was my own true nature. And I realized that to be unfree or to be unenlightened was was the illusion that from the perspective of my own true nature, a deepest self, that had always been the case. This all happened within a period of about 10 seconds. And then I, I was looking at the ground and he said, what is that? That's it. And I looked up at him and, and he just burst out laughing. And I said, how did you know? And that was the kind of situation I was in with him. Hmm. So I felt with many of the Buddhist teachers I had, I felt that they were very good at, at teaching the, the meth- methodology of meditation, the technical methodology of meditation, and were very good at pointing out and describing the nature of mind and how the mind works and helping to make it clear and apparent that the mind is a mechanical process and has no self-nature, and very powerfully. But I never had the experience that I was in the presence of someone who was one with the source of enlightened awareness itself. And that was really the big and dramatic difference. Mm, Okay, great. As you're talking about your experience with Punja and then him sort of handing you the mantle, sort of implied in the way you responded is that you didn't end up teaching things just the way that he was teaching them. I mean, I know that now, of course, that you haven't continued that exact approach. But that opens up this question of what have you been teaching and how did that come about, particularly some of the stuff that you're teaching now? Shortly after I started teaching, I, I noticed that in spite of the fact that the people who were coming to me were having very powerful experiences of transcendence, I noticed in so many ways that their, um, that their behavior didn't change that much. And for some reason, I'm not really sure that, that sure why, I always looked for the, you know, the actual transformation of behavior and transformation of motive uh, as a sign of of spiritual awakening and spiritual transformation. So really, you know, pretty soon after I started teaching, I started emphasizing the necessity for the transformation of, of behavior, transformation of our of our motive and actions, you know, as a sign of spiritual illumination. This led to, you know, over a period of, of a few years, you know, a, a pretty profound philosophical disagreement between us because he felt that freedom had nothing to do with action. It had nothing to do with the world. It had to do with being free from. And I felt quite the opposite, that freedom and spiritual truth really had everything to do and needed to be directly related to our relationship to world and how that translated into enlightened action and, and, and spiritual motivation. That was at the the beginning. And then the, the next step was I... Uh, some of my students had invited me for lunch one day. And after lunch, I remember I was sitting by myself observing two people having a conversation. And I suddenly realized that what those two individuals were sharing was more important than what they had individually received from me. In other words, I, I was aware of the fact that they were sharing a higher or illumined context in their conversation. It was, it was apparent by the sound in their voice and the way they were being together, that they were sharing a higher state and a higher perspective together. That was the beginning of, of my understanding that what I was really teaching was really about the transformation and evolution of our shared culture rather than uh, what I used to call personal enlightenment or enlightenment merely for the individual. And that emphasis, you know, and that direction really continued to develop over the years. In the work I, I was doing with our, our magazine, Enlighten Next, and a lot of the work I was doing with my students, you know, at a certain point, discovered the evolutionary worldview and the cosmic context for life in the universe. 
through the work of, you know, of the, of the great Pierre Terre de Chardin, Sri Aurobindo, and others. And this really helped to contextualize the direction I had already been going in for many years. And an evolutionary worldview, you know, started to really inform my emphasis on enlightened action and enlightened behavior. This really began to fit very perfectly in, in my discovery of, of an evolutionary worldview and an evolutionary context for the human experience. That in fact, the creative process emerged from primordial emptiness. Uh, and evolution is a process that's gone somewhere. It's a process of emergence from lower levels of being in existence to higher, more complex ones. And, uh, you know, the great chain of being from, you know, from energy and light, you know, to matter, to life, to consciousness, to the human capacity for higher cognition and self-reflective awareness, understanding and recognizing that progression, which leads us to the, the grand, uh, you know, understanding and insight that, in fact, the through highly evolved human consciousness, we could say that the energy and intelligence that, that created the universe gains the capacity to behold itself, to recognize itself, to realize itself. You know, we are evolution becoming aware of itself. This insight really has, has become the, the insight and the perspective that's really informing my whole approach to spiritual liberation right now because the new enlightenment that I'm teaching, which is fundamentally about embracing the evolutionary impulse as the source of ourself and the evolutionary impulse in this case is the human experience, is the actual the tangible human experience of the energy and intelligence that created the universe that emerged from primordial emptiness. And the human experience of that creative uh, drive and creative motivation is the uniquely human compulsion towards innovation and, and creativity and higher consciousness and higher development. And so it's the drive towards becoming in the universe, the drive to become, the creative drive towards becoming that gives rise to higher and higher levels of being is now the, the, the fundamental focus of, of this new approach to enlightenment because as in the old enlightenment, we need to transcend the fears and desires of the ego and the separate self in order to be able to let go deeply enough so that we can awaken to the deepest part of ourself that's never been born and never entered the stream of time. In the same way, in the new enlightenment, we need to transcend the fears and desires of the ego or the separate self so we can align ourselves and become one with the first cause or the, the eros or the creative energy that's driving the creative process in the universe. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. 
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.